Welcome everyone to episode 26 of Popcorn Peeps, the podcast in which we venture through the Hollywood Reporter's top 100 films of all time and give our thoughts along the way. In this episode, we will be checking out the 1957 war film directed by David Lean, based on the 1952 novel Bridge on the River Kwai. This film stars Alec Guinness, William Holden, and Sesu Kayakawa. I am joined today by explosives expert Craig Moore. Hey everybody. Bridge engineer Sarah Alexander. Konnichiwa, Jordan. <laughs> and Jungle Commando, Chris McMullen. Hi, everybody. What are your first impressions of Bridge on the River Kwai? I like this movie. This is this might be an unpopular opinion, but I thought this movie had a lot to say, especially based on the time in which it was released. I agree, but I think that it could have done so in a more, I'm going to sound like Chris here, historically accurate way. Like, I get that this not is not a documentary, <laughs> and I get that it's trying to show the futility of war and showing it through these three different men and their lens and the futility around each of their storylines. But I think having the background of the brutality of this camp would have been better. Chris's ego is going to be way too inflated. I think that's what I was looking for. Just something to, something more historically accurate here. How about you, Mr. McMullen? I liked it. Just like Sarah, I could have done with more torture. I couldn't figure out if I was going to put this film kind of somewhere in the middle of my list or lower, but after sitting on it, I just think it's kind of mediocre. It starts out in a really interesting place where you have this power imbalance between the POW prisoners and the Japanese guards, and I think it's going to be really interesting on how it's going to play out, but it just lacks so much. It's too tame. It doesn't go far enough into the graphic kind of violence that happened, and as a result, it felt kind of like a funhouse version of a POW camp. I know movies in the 50s weren't overly gory and like the horror genre was super tame but I felt like Saito should have come out and he should have been scary and we should have saw him on screen and thought oh god what is this guy gonna do next but I never really felt any like any fear or anything like that from the Japanese even though in, in real life they were monsters killing and tons of these prisoners throughout this time period. I agree, Jordan. It's like once he recognized Nicholson's superiority, he just kind of fell into line. And sure, there was that layer of shame that he had with the British building this bridge so well, but I think it just could have been so much more. I don't know who it is. At the very beginning of the film, they're even joking around while they're burying the body and like pilfering and pickpocketing all the pockets and stuff like that. And I thought it was going to be a comedy the way they were playing off those first couple lines, but they never really developed the comedy. And as a result, it sets the tone to be something more light than I think is really necessary for a film like this to work. Talking about uh, the power imbalance and pride and... I don't think it set the tone as a comedy at the beginning. I think that was kind of gallows humor. And I believe we saw that when the... Not the commander. He Well, he was commander, but he wasn't actually a commander. Whatever. When he was speaking with the colonel and explaining to him, like, you don't really know what this place is. You don't know what this place is like. like he was just joking with his buddy about the 48th guy they buried this week. That's the kind of place to say. The problem is we never saw that. So while we can believe that that happened because of the jokes that they were telling, <clears throat> we never saw the water torture, the working to exhaustion, the starving people because they refused to work. An example of that was... Yeah, put him in that box and we'll see him two scenes from now when the commander gives in and gives them everything they want. And we're still in Hayes Code era, right? Yeah. They couldn't show that kind of... How mm -hmm. messed up Alec Guinness was after his time in the box, that was probably as far as they could go. That would have been considered shocking at the time. 
And they did allude to the caning. Yeah, they alluded to the mm-hmm. caning when they brought the sticks in and then carried him out and put him in the box. But I feel like they could have done more, I feel like. And- yeah, from a modern context, it seems like it seems too tame to really have an impact when a lot of the media we're exposed to is so much more extreme. Like Chris and I watched Black Sails the other day and they ran this guy under the ship against the kelp and the barnacles as a punishment for being a pirate. And Chris and I were sitting there like physically fucking uncomfortable yeah. watching this guy get tortured. I feel like that's some of the energy this film needed to really excel compared to like if you have like your band of brothers or even saving private ryan how they tackle war and how they're able to now it just seems so much more i'm guessing realistic i have never been in a war but this did seem so tame and maybe that is to just so your attention is really on the futility of the individual storylines well the good news is that when disney buys the rights to this film and remakes it two years from now (laughs) this is a joke Please don't actually do that. <laughs> we'll actually find out what it looks like to see the com- the Japanese commander cut someone in half with a sword because he looked at him the wrong way. Saito, I think he is there as that banality of evil, that bureaucratic doing the job, not like Himmler or Goring or something like that, but just a dude who's there and his job is to get this bridge done and he'll do it however he needs to get it done. He doesn't have any real drive because of something it's just that's my job i'm here in thailand and i'm gonna build this bridge he was kind of a prisoner in in his own camp yeah his whole life depended on it he was willing to kill himself if this bridge didn't go through him just calling it a job i don't think so i think he was very concerned that his honor was on the line and he was willing to sacrifice himself if he had failed this cause but that would be the same if he was working in a paper factory yeah i don't think he was like ideologically driven to build a bridge yeah No, but he he was ideologically driven to complete what he was assigned to regardless of what it was. It just so happened to be a bridge. Yeah, he's ideologically driven to help Japan succeed in the war, and that is one of the means to do it. See, I don't even even think that. I think it's just this is, you know, this is my job. I don't think so. My job is to do this. I don't think he's... I don't uh, think so. I don't think he's just clocking in. It seemed like he kind of was, because my issue with him is that he was like Hans Gruber. He was a monster who wasn't monstrous enough. Yeah. He, had, he was a lion with no claws. He was a shitty human stuck with or straddled with middle management responsibility. The difference between him and Hans Gruber, though, is Hans Gruber chose to be there and chose to do the things he wanted to do. This guy was a victim of circumstance. He was stuck in the labor camp with a job to do. And if he didn't do it, then he was to kill himself and they would find someone who would. Yep. My problem is that makes a film that doesn't really excite me in a lot of ways. And I was thinking of like, what would I do to change the villain? You couldn't even really fix him if he was uh, an SFB, uh, because then the plot falls apart because he can't. What's an SFB? I don't know what SFB means. Scumfuck bastard. But you can't make him an SFB because then there's no way for the British to end up collaborating with him because they look at him and they're just disgusted by the demon that he is. And so I think the way to make this film better, or at least to me in my eyes, and make the villain, quote unquote, better integrated in the story is really focus on the balance of power. It feels like as soon as Saito can't fix the bridge, he keels over like a dog and lets Nicholson pet his belly and give him treats while Nicholson just takes charge and rules the whole shebang. I really think there should have been a greater focus on trying to maintain control or authority over the workers or the production or something like that, at least to give us a little bit more tension in the situation. It seemed very overly simple. So my opinion is that Saito is not actually the villain. He's not a bad guy in this story. Alec Guinness is the villain. The war is the villain. And the three men that we watch, it's just three different stories of men versus the war. 
I think it's men versus themselves. Sure. I, I, well, I mean, what is war if not a reflection of man? It's a civil war. <laughs> um, when you talk about the villain and making him a, a shredder from Ninja Turtles, psychopath, SFB, <laughs> I, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but I think war kind of is an SFB. So if you ever watch this movie again, Jordan, I would challenge you to watch it with Saito not as the villain, but yet another victim of the war. I mean, that's probably the best lens to view it under. I think really, if you look at what happens to Nicholson a little bit later, you realize what the filmmakers were trying to do and really not, not necessarily showcase hero villain, but just show how pride and authority and power distorts judgment. And this is just the setting they've chose to put it in. And so yeah, you're you're probably right on that one. Again, I still think a bit of a power struggle would have made the dynamic between Nicholson and Saito more interesting to watch from like a viewing perspective. I agree. The way I read that whole relationship was this colonialist British superiority, right? These guys don't even know how to run their own prison camp. Let me show you how it's done, Mm -hmm. right? So you know what's beautiful about that? That view that the British colonialists come in and teach the Japanese how to build a bridge while the Japanese are currently in the process of conquering and colonizing Thailand. So the OG colonialists need to come in and show the new colonialists how it's done. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> no, 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 that's not how you colonize new land. Let me show you how to take advantage of people who've been living here for thousands of years. Look at these shitty colonialists. It's only been doing it for a week and a half. Part of that whole thing though is another reason why I think the movie is kind of eh. The fact that Nicholson gets so involved in this bridge project and so proud of it that at the end he's willing to us <laughs> to fight against his own people to preserve this stupid fucking bridge I felt like was absurd and maybe it was hyperbole to showcase this extreme form of this event but it just took me out of the experience so much that even if the message was about a corruption and authority and war and purpose and how it can be so easily shifted I just felt like the absurdity of it made it kind of a moot point anyway. I don't think that part was absurd because they build off of it on the scene where it's just Saito and Nicholson on the bridge together and he's complaining like I've worked, I haven't been home except for probably 10 months in my whole career and I have nothing to prove for it. Now all of a sudden he has this bridge which he's overcome a lot to be able to build this piece of infrastructure. He's gotten captured, he's fought all these wars and he was able to retaliate against the Japanese commander and have this piece of work built and that's why he gets the plaque put on. So I think it just becomes something that that is his legacy and he'd probably pilgrimage to it like come see the bridge daddy built if he had gotten out of it just overwhelmingly narcissistic not even sure narcissistic i don't think it is man no once you get to be in a certain age you start to look towards the legacy you're gonna leave behind and this is an old man like nicholson is probably in his 50s in this movie i think the character is probably in his 50s so he's getting towards the end of his career he's getting towards the end of his life he's probably lived through this probably like his third war so it would have been like probably like the boer war world war one and world war two and like this is his whole life and his whole life has been nothing it's been blowing people up and killing people he's built nothing of value his entire life and this is his his one chance in his entire life to build something that might stand the test of time. I agree. And I totally get that. And it totally, totally would consume him, right? Like the, you have this objective, you s- some way to leave a mark and you lose sight of everything else. That isn't just the body count yeah. in your rear, yeah. rear view mirror. 
it's not even just that. Like, he has something. He comes into this with a such a noble cause, stands in front of Saito and says, no, you're in violation of blah, 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 blah. He's clearly a righteous man, and his followers respect him, clearly done well in his life to gain the respect and the understanding of his comrades and build this moral code to think he has nothing. Yeah, but Jordan, when... When they die, who's going to remember him? Oh my god, that's such a toxic idea of legacy. But that's how that's how humans work. You you want to leave something that that surpasses you, that goes on. Yeah, something greater than yourself. I, I really hate to play this card because it's going to sound... I, I hate it when people say this, but I'm going to be the person to say it so I can hate myself. You'll understand when you're older. <laughs> I love that that's I love that that's coming from you. He's like three years old. And he got to use it on the only person he could say it to. That's right. Oh, no, Sarah's younger. Sarah's younger. Yeah, I agree, though. Yeah, you're still immortal. You 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 haven't felt the cold fingers of death on your back. Oh, my gosh. Just wait till you get shingles and need glasses in the same month. And you age, you age seven, you age in dog years. That's hilarious. I don't need glasses anymore. I look like a teen. I'm like acting like a teenager. So I was doing a little bit of reading about this and Alec Guinness was very unhappy about the film stating that it was anti-British and poking fun at British pride. How do you guys feel about this point? I think it was turning the lens to the ridiculousness of their pride. Yeah, I don't necessarily think it was making fun either, Chris. I think you're right. At the very worst, it was an extreme caricature so that you could see it in its truest form. I don't even think that. I think it was, you already used a mirror metaphor, but Alec Guinness was looking at a mirror of how his country has acted yeah. and how the world sees his country. And it, they weren't making fun. It was an accurate portrayal of that stiff upper lip, literally get hit in the face with a Geneva Convention and not flinch. Bring out the Geneva Convention. <laughs> yeah, totally. I absolutely agree with you. They're, they're standing in the middle of the jungle being told that they're going to get worked to death and they're just like, well, boys, let's get to it. (laughs) So one of the comments I thought was really interesting, looking at it as a piece of anti-British media or potentially anti-British media, the director, David Lean, who also did Dr. Zhivago on our list and will continue to do Lawrence of Arabia, said, and this was, maybe it's not true, maybe it is, but this was an official autobiography done by Alec Guinness. When filming wrapped up with this, Lean told them, now you can go fuck home, you English actors. Thank God I'm working with Americans tomorrow. That's when Will, he, that's ah. before William Holden came on set. And so he said that when he was going to start shooting with William Holden. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> I think if you're going to use the directorial vision as a, I don't know, as maybe a source to pull information from, to view it as an anti-British film, I think that helps. And the fact that David Lean is also British. Is he? Exactly. Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it's possible that Alec Guinness was a proud Brit and didn't like looking into the mirror. Probably. Yeah, I, 100%. I couldn't agree with you more. Especially, I don't know if David Lean served or not, but especially coming from Alec Guinness, did, he was in the military during yeah. the war. So then having this to look at. If this is a commentary on that, it really feels like the only absurd Brit is Nicholson. All of the other Brits seem completely fine. Wouldn't it make more sense to make all of the Brits this kind of, uh, I don't know, like egocentric, nationalistic type of character? Or is that just unnecessary? We didn't really see the other officers. They, they were still like, they were head nodders. It was not like they're like, there was anyone who was like, oh, 
There was no body language that didn't say anything other than, yes, leader, we agree. Yeah, I think that was the only line from each of them was, yes, leader, we agree. <laughs> and I'm not even joking. The, the doctor was, this, was the one... Until we get to the hospital, and then there's that special battalion there. But I also found they kind of had a similar attitude. I didn't like that the British doctor was made out to appear like he was this crazy weirdo for not wanting to help the Japanese build a railroad. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Like, he's the guy out of his mind for not wanting mm -hmm. to help the enemy. What a psycho! You don't understand more. I really liked the, the doctor. I liked that he was kind of a point you could connect yourself with in this realm of absurdity. Uh, so was Shears. Shears was kind of like a in over his head, kind of just looking to satisfy his own needs of survival, get the fuck out of this crazy place, and he keeps getting pulled back in or whatnot. And so I felt like those two were nice points to ground yourself when viewing kind of the rest of the characters and the, the absurdity of the camp. I think that, Sarah, you'll appreciate this. Sears was kind of like the Venkman. He was not nearly as bad. He was polite. He was actually charming and not a douchebag. I mean, he didn't drug anybody that I saw. He was literally a fraud. All, all he did was take a dead man's uniform. <laughs> he wasn't using it anymore. Yeah. He owned up to not being I think being I probably would too. Yeah, because he wanted to get out of something. I respect that. Yeah, I would want to get out of the war as well. Yeah, well, he's not Don Draper. <laughs> Honestly, you know what? I got to tell you, if, if I'm going to a prison camp and I'm, I'm standing there next to a dead officer and I know that based on the way that prison camps work, officers get treated better, I'm going to pretend to be an officer. Of course. Fuck, I don't, I don't care. No, I'm not, I'm not going to maintain my private Moore status. No, no. <laughs> I don't think there's any scenario where I'm not an officer, so I can't relate. <laughs> okay. Oh my so my one thing with Shears is that I think it's cool that they send him back over. I'm like, okay, we're going to, reincorporate this character into the story and the connecting thread is that he's experienced this before he knows the path he knows the route but the first thing they do is go oh we can't use that route anymore yeah. and I really feel like it undervalues the necessity of Shears's character I felt like if they just used that route and incorporated Shears's knowledge into the the re-engagement more it would have felt way more cohesive I agree. I liked that they didn't because he points that out. Like, we're not like, why am I even here? You didn't even take my route. But I think it goes to show like, we didn't really need you, but we're bringing you along anyway, even though you're no benefit. And obviously we don't really care if anything happens to you. Just how little purpose that they all had or how they were viewed. I thought it was good that they didn't take his route. Cog in a machine. Yeah. Right? Like you're just another body now. That gives him his angle against the war. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just another point about Shears. I really liked his relationship with Jack Hawkins' character, Major Warden. I thought that was one of the only relationships in the in the movie that felt pretty genuine. And I liked the camaraderie there when Warden is on the ground and Shears refuses to go on. And that really builds the, the connection between them. And I think it really makes the final scene more tense when they're doing the mission. It gives you a chance to really, really connect with them, see them as humans instead of characters or archetypes or whatever. So I did enjoy that. I think even from an acting standpoint, I didn't love William Holden in the first half when he was at the camp. I thought everything seemed kind of choppy with his delivery there. But once he moved into the hospital and into the jungle, I thought it was a really good development for him. I thought he did a lot better. I loved everything with the commandos. The juxtaposition of the commandos to the regiment, every bit of it was great. Like, oh, look, the guy who's never parachuted before, he's fine. One of the other guys <laughs> dead in a tree. Roll of the dice. And you're like, well, fuck. All right, what's next? I didn't like that they had the Canadian Olympic swimmer <laughs> who clearly wasn't prepared for war, who was afraid to use a knife and sent him on this commando mission of four people to blow up this bridge, like this guarded bridge. He clearly wasn't ready to go do this. Why did he go? 
because nobody was ready. Oh. If you if you look at the stats, there you didn't do seventy two com uh, commando missions. You did three, and you didn't and you didn't retire after the third one. You died. The guy said he wasn't ready, and then they were like, "Yeah, well, well, none of us are ready, uh, but we're here, so shut the fuck up." Here's your knife. <laughs> it was the Pacific Theater in World War II. There was no shortage of British soldiers sitting around in India getting yeah. drunk or drinking tea. I think when the commandos start parachuting is when the movie gets fun to watch. Yeah. I'd agree. And that's when I really got on board. And when I started connecting with the characters, I felt like everyone else was so archetypal. And I understand that that's because they were trying to prove a point, as you guys said, with the way Alec Guinness's character is. But I don't know. Maybe that's why I didn't enjoy this movie that much. It's just because I felt like so detached from the entire thing. There was no eye guy for you? Not really. No what, sorry? The eye guy. The the guy who's you. Oh. The one you relate to. Who? If there had to be one, Shears, but like barely. But I think that's probably a common sentiment. I see you more of as a Nicholson. Don't, does everyone see Jordan as a Nicholson? 100%. What? It's the ego. Was it? Oh! <laughs> really? No. He's more like one of the Thai girls who carries the shit through the woods. <laughs> Best take ever, Sarah. Thank you for that. What do you guys think of our final scene with the train? That was really good. Oh, so good. I was so mad at Nicholson. Yeah, but I thought it was very poetic how everything ended and he wound up destroying his own bridge. So this is pretty close to the book in terms of like general plotting, but this was the one difference. In the book, Nicholson doesn't have that realization moment and the tr mm. bridge doesn't blow up, but the train is derailed later with a secondary explosive. And so it's, it's interesting that the original author didn't give you that aha moment and just left mm -hmm. Nicholson corrupt. But this scene was really tense. This is probably the most tension, regardless of whether it was good or deserved tension, it was there. I was frustrated probably as much as I was shaking and clenching my butt trying to see if this train was gonna blow up. But I don't know. I think we were all screaming at the TV, fuck the train, yep. blow up the bridge, yeah, blow up yeah. the bridge. And so even if I didn't enjoy the movie to become that involved in any part of it, I got to applaud because that was a fun time. It was. Yeah, I did not go into this movie thinking I would be so invested by the end. Chris, you fell asleep. Only for two minutes. In the middle for <laughs> one minute. And then he was invested. In Chris's defense, there was a significant lull in the mid game. Yes. Yeah. I was going to say TBH, the part he fell asleep with, in was the most boring <laughs> part of the film. So, you know what? I'm going to give him a pass. Is there anything you want, any special parts you want to talk about before we uh, move on to music? I guess I didn't notice that the whistle, I didn't know that the whistle was from this movie because I feel like you hear that in other movies. It was in the parent trap when they come marching in. Is that from this movie or is it another song? And this is, that's the origin of yeah, it. Yeah, it was written for this. To be honest, it was the only part of this movie, the music in this movie that I remember. This was done by British composer Malcolm Arnold. He recalled that he had 10 days to write about 45 minutes worth of music, much less wow. time than he was used to. And he described his work as some of the worst stuff he's ever done from his point of view and during that time. But despite this, went and won a, what was it, a Grammy and an Oscar for this soundtrack? What soundtrack? Because I remember it as in inoffensive and underwhelming and upon a re-listen yeah. inoffensive and <laughs> underwhelming it was generic marching band nothing stood out I mean, it was doing literally the bare minimum to keep it from being a, a dead silent film and i think i remember like it would be silent during some of the tense moments but then when something was ramping up it would have that kind of stereotypical suspense something's coming music 
suspenseful track dot mp4 yeah yeah generic yeah yeah nothing stood out besides the whistle for me although i guess there had to be a film to make something generic maybe this you is know what it. i mean like there's a first time no. that something generic got i don't know i can't imagine that this was it before people recorded music for movies they just played music and so the generic origins are probably pre-film anyway i'm just picturing like a bunch of cavemen sitting around a campfire <laughs> and some rustles in the bush and one guy goes dun 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 <laughs> surprised unga bunga face <laughs> yeah I had a fun fact do you remember the scene with the nurse on the beach that William Holden encountered yes so that was only added to the movie because the higher ups complained that there were no white women in this film and so oh my god, oh my god. David... <laughs> that's so gross thanks I hate so it so David Lean hated Ugh. this but he had to put it in <laughs> I thought oh my oh god, my god. <laughs> we need representation only when it's to represent yeah. white people <laughs> not that the fact that there was no women which is what you usually get in more movies because there was what five or six in the village but yeah, no, needed this one i really liked how this film gave us a glimpse that women can be tough too even in the 50s all the men are enslaved building this railroad or whatever and so they go no our women are tough you'll take them with you and you know what they were fucking tough and they provided better than probably any of the commandos could have and so i i did appreciate that even though the quirky love story between one of the the women and it didn't need those love stories Unnecessary and shoehorn. Yes. Very. The uncomfortable staring from the one lady. <laughs> so I'm going to stare at you at the dinner table from now on, Chris. To make you uncomfortable. Lovely. That's how I always stare at you. You're just not looking. Oh, no. <laughs> Alrighty. If you're following along with the YouTube video, you can check the link at the top of the description to see where we've ranked the films that we've seen so far. But... Sarah, where would you place Bridge on the River Kwai amongst the films we've seen so far? I am putting this in my 12th position between Amadeus and Bonnie and Clyde. My main point of comparison to this was just Dr. Zhivago because that's the only other David Lean film we've seen. And I did like that one much better stylistically. And I thought it was a really well done. This one, sure, it had some great moments. And it, I did think find the ending really impactful in the storylines. But I didn't enjoy it as much as I think I enjoyed that one. Yeah, this one's a tough one. I had it a lot higher before we started talking about it, but you guys did poke some reasonable holes in it. I, I like the three different stories about men who are confronted by war and just war sucks. Everybody knows war sucks, but we keep doing it anyways. If any politicians are listening to the podcast, please stop. <laughs> I'm going to put this one in 10th place below Beauty and the Beast and above seven because love is better than war. So poetic. Okay, so this has actually moved up my list three spots since we started talking. I think I've finally landed on where it is. And it is now in spot number six, just behind uh, 12 Angry Men, and it actually moved Reservoir Dogs down one. Interesting. You have to look at it through the lens of the time it was produced. It showed me something that I hadn't seen there. It really underscored that ridiculousness of the multiple kinds of honor japanese general he was going to kill himself because the bridge wasn't done and uh nicholson was just this character but a real one when the commandos were great and then you had the american who all he wanted to do was just sit on a beach and drink martinis and that was it he's done with the war mm -hmm. he is out of here and then they managed to talk him into doing one last job always one last job for the boys <laughs> just when i get out they pull me back in the different kinds of honor and how it destroyed all three of them 
I am going to place this film a little bit lower at spot 23 below Deer Hunter and above Below Deer Hunter? I thought this was a worse worse war film and a look at war than what Deer Hunter gave oh us. Oh my god. <gasps> Jordan. This is Jordan's hot take. Wow. What the actual fuck? I just thought when you look at what Deer Hunter is the You thought Ghostbusters was better than this? Ghostbusters is funny as fuck and has demon dogs. Terror dogs. <laughs> Terror dogs. We've got a couple war movies now, or at least Deer Hunter was the one that sticks out to me most. Uh, the main character in Deer Hunter, looking at how war affects him, I thought was more powerful and more moving than war's effect on any of these characters in this film. Totally subjective. Again, I'm not a big history aficionado and I don't particularly care about ye old British culture. I understand it was atrocious and it was terrible, but it's not a point of interest that really resonates with me. And so probably a lot was lost there. And so I don't- Deer Hunter is the worst movie I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. This one's 23. It's a bad movie that they added war stuff because they Chris, couldn't pitch it. Don't waste your breath. I mean, Deer Hunter was a bad movie, but I thought the nuggets of gold in Deer Hunter shone more brightly than the nuggets in this film. Just, just take it where it's that coming That was corn. From. I'm going to defend Jordan's- Jordan, Jordan, in, that in was Jordan's... corn in a piece of shit. It was not nuggets of gold. <laughs> I got to tell you, in Jordan's defense, if you look at this film from a standard good guy versus bad guy, that kind of war movie, this doesn't, this is no good. Well, I mean, it's not a good movie. Deer Hunter wasn't a good guy versus bad guy either. It was that nobody wins because every single person who goes as a part of the fleet of these boys ends up fucked up and deranged in their own way. And I just felt like the the acting and the lasting impact of how those characters had suffered was much more memorable. Like that, we watched that movie a long, long time ago and it still sticks with me, even though a lot of the rest of the movie is kind of garbo. Whereas I don't feel like a lot of this is gonna be memorable. And I didn't care about a lot of the characters. Did you place this just in comparison to Deer Hunter? Or did you place it com compared to other films on the list? This is where it goes on the list. I won't watch this again. And there's a lot above it I would watch again, or I feel like I enjoyed Die more. Hard? Maybe doesn't necessarily have a better message or moral, but from a purely entertainment and rewatchability standpoint, it just didn't do it for me. Yeah, it's not trash. Like there are pieces of it that are good. I just think most of it was stuff that didn't appeal to me. It doesn't have to. Nope. Art is subjective. Mm, yeah, that is a true statement, but Jordan is wrong right now. Mm, it's fine. I can live with that. Chris, what are we going to be watching in episode 27 of Popcorn Peeps? We're going to be watching 1974's Blazing Saddles. Let's go. If you put your cowboy hats away from the Brokeback episode, pull them back out, because here we go again. Beep, 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 beep. Beep. <laughs> I'm really interested to see this 47 years after it was made, because uh, I am afraid there's going to be some stuff in here that we're just going to go like, oh, no. Is it worse than Ghostbusters? Yeah, I think it's probably going to be worse than Ghostbusters. Does it have terror dogs? <laughs> Popcorn Peeps episode 27, the one where we get canceled. <laughs> yeah, we didn't make the movie. Where can our audience check it out? Unfortunately, there's no place where you can stream it with a pre-existing subscription, but you can rent it on uh, Apple TV, Google Play, Cineplex, Microsoft, and even Amazon in HD. I don't think there's anyone who you can watch it in 4K, and I'm right. If you would like to support the show, you can do so on Patreon. There's a link at the top of the description of YouTube video as well as on popcornpeeps.com. But special thank you to Travis Laporte, Jim Wamsley, Ryan Saarinen, Erica Wilson, Frank Costa, Sarah Renier, Tyler Laporte, and Balls Johnson. Oh my God. <laughs> Balls 
Johnson. Nice. I was talking to Balls the other day. Oh and God. he asked when we were recording. <laughs> and so I told him and he's like, oh, I got to get in there and change my name. Oh my God. Yeah, Balls Johnson was at my house last night. How is old Balls doing these Stop. days? <laughs> he's a well-rounded individual. Oh. Oh. <laughs> that was good, Chris. I found him always to be a bit hard-headed. Oh. <laughs> Tell me about it. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Have a great night, evening, afternoon, whenever you're listening to it. But um, see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Bye.